This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how artists, educators, and cultural practitioners can change the world one community at a time. We believe that young people are our world's greatest asset and recognize that we, as the adults who are dedicated to their creative development, have work to do so they can thrive. Listeners are invited each week to learn and laugh while envisioning new creative futures through the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Hi, this is Vita Manalang, Research and Community Knowledge Associate. And I'm Andre Solomon, Community Knowledge Manager, letting you know Creative Generation Summer Residencies applications are open. Last year, we launched a pilot summer residency program where residents got to work directly with the Creative Generation team in areas of research, learning, leadership, and communication. Here, they hone their commitment to and clarity of identity and values, skills in written communication, presentation for research, learning, project management, and media slash artistic practice. This year, we invite a second cohort of residents to join us from June 6th to August 19th. Our collective encourages systemic change by working within and disrupting the current structures of the arts and cultural education and social change sectors. Recognizing the negative impacts of traditional internship models, we seek to mentor new professionals with necessary tools, training, and resources that will aid them in changing the landscape of our field for the future. With a commitment to our values of honoring diversity and enabling radical inclusion, Creative Generation encourages individuals of diverse identities, backgrounds, and experiences to apply. Find out more about the open positions and program structure on our website. Visit www.creative-generation.org slash work with us. Applications are due on April 29th, so check it out now. Hey everyone, Jeff here. I'm so excited to share this episode with you, which was recorded live at the Colorado Music Educators Association Conference on January 27th, 2022 in Colorado Springs, Colorado in the USA. Myself and Ashraf and our special guest joined a live audience of music educators to discuss the trends that were happening at the conference, our own ideas on music education, and a big, bold call for action. You may note that there's a small disruption in the audio. We had a technical difficulty with a dead battery. Good thing we had a backup. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to this episode of the Why Change podcast, coming to you live from the Colorado Music Educators Association Conference, or CMEA. We are live in beautiful and snowy Colorado Springs, Colorado in the USA. And we're here with a live audience of new friends. We're so excited. And <laughs> yes, yes. And I am really thrilled to be joined by my co-host, co-conspirator, buddy, Ashraf Hasham. Hey, Ashraf, what's going on? Jeff! Oh, it's so good to see you here in person for the first time in a 
three years or something, right? For the first time in what feels like forever, I think we talked about that on a couple episodes ago, how excited <laughs> we were for this. And there was a little bit of uh, questioning whether it was actually going to happen in person, and here we are. So it is really, really wonderful to be here together Amen. in person. But Ashraf, we have some new friends with us here at this conference who maybe are new to the podcast. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here today, and what your connection is to music education, which is why we're all here in Colorado Springs. Yeah, totally. So uh, Ashraf, he him pronouns. I work at uh, the city of Seattle's Office of Arts and Culture. That's right. Seattle, Washington. Uh, I don't know if there's a Seattle, Colorado, but it's possible. Um, now, I came to this conference at a couple of different connecting flights that got delayed. No big deal. But the reason I'm here is to totally like talk about how music education has um, affected my life and how I've been able to give back to it over the years. Primarily, right now, um, the main piece is through my work at the Office of Arts and Culture at the City of Seattle as a government funder, as somebody who's able to influence youth investments for the city. And uh, in this case, it's through the Creative Advantage. It's a uh, public-private partnership, a collective impact initiative of the City of Seattle and the Seattle Public School District to make sure arts education is equitably accessed by every single student predictably and um, sequentially um, so that folks can have um, that education that meets core standards and also are able to be uh, worked on by community partners brought into the schools from creative youth development organizations, teaching artists that reflect the lived experience of the youth served. And the other big um, part of art, uh, music education in my history is the Vera Project, which is a all ages music education organization in Seattle. It is um, a volunteer-driven nonprofit music and arts center that provides a home for Seattle's all-ages creative community. It's not only a concert venue, it's also a screen printing shop, a recording studio, and an art gallery, all run by young people, I swear, seriously. And they not only run the shows, uh, they are doing everything from concessions to, to taking tickets at the door, doing security, doing um, green room hosting, uh, and paying the artists out at the end of the night. Uh, they're also um, leading the programming outside of just the shows themselves, like the screen printing labs are all operated by the young people. All the gallery exhibitions are put on by young people. And they feature adults, right? Like these are just, we're treating young people as, as people in, <laughs> in an organization like Vera. I was executive director there for two years, right before I was at the city. And when I was there, we were able to offer those experiential learning opportunities for community and have that safe space of radical transformation and self-expression. And that's what music education is able to do. Not just the playing of the music, but the all sides of the ecosystem. Um, so that's the lens I'm bringing here. I also used to play trumpet. Jeff, I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> In elementary school and middle school, so... Uh, shout out to Adams Elementary and Whitman Middle School in well, Washington. We'll absolutely have to test your skills with the trumpets <laughs> in the exhibit hall uh, tomorrow morning. Um, well, that's great. Thanks, Ashraf, for sharing that. And I'm, I'm really excited to explore some of those themes in today's conversation around youth leadership in music education, the ecosystem that it takes to have a comprehensive arts and music education for every student in any city, um, using maybe the example of, of Seattle that you talked about, and certainly I definitely want to hear you play the trumpet. It's <laughs> happening. Don't, 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 uh, we promised this. Let's just remember that. We did. So at this 
Colorado Music Educators Association conference, I had the really unique pleasure of leading a session with about 50 young people yesterday as part of their Tri-M Day. So it's the student leadership conference portion. So these young people were making music throughout the day, they were attending seminars throughout the day, and about 55 of them or so came to my session, which was about the research we had done at Creative Generation on the different modalities of applied creativity, how young people can identify where they have a natural proclivity mm. to express themselves, to work together with others, to act locally or globally, and different ways to take what they might learn in a band class or a chorus class and the creative aspects of that work to turn it into something that has greater impact in their own communities. Mm. And it was so cool to talk to these folks who are maybe, I don't know, 12 to 18, thinking about how they might translate their music making, the skills that they are here building with clinicians from all around the country, into social action. And they were talking about um, elevating unheard voices on the topic of Black Lives Matter. They were talking about combating hatred as part of the um, Asian American and Pacific Islander um, fight hate movement. Mm. They were talking about uh, creating messages that could be heard by people using the vehicle of music. Wow. And it wasn't about, you know, things that they were reading in textbooks in schools. They were about their own real lived experience. And it was absolutely amazing to see that take place in this ballroom right here in this wonderful hotel that we are in. And it just set me on the right path, I think, for this conversation today and for the conversations that we'll continue to have with adults around the room, around the conference, around the world uh, by way of this podcast to truly think about what the potential is for music education beyond playing all the right notes or singing the song right. Oh, you know what I love about that is because what you're saying, what these young people are doing, not only are they making music for those change, for that change they want to see, but they're also exhibiting collaboration, creative thinking, communication styles shifting across, and, and empathy and love, right? Like that's human stuff um, that arts education, music education particularly, can help cultivate in young people, right? And to add to that list, I'll just reflect some of the ideas that they brought forward. Mm. I presented these young people with the findings from some early research we did at Creative Generation back in 2019. Some of our listeners probably remember me talking about it, where we learned from people all around the globe that the narratives that have been built around arts education are actually reinforcing stereotypes that are not actually representative of what's happening in arts classrooms um, all over. Really? And in the United States, we actually looked at the 50 most cited pieces of advocacy literature for arts education, going back to the mid-90s. And what we found is that there were three dominant narratives. The first is that um, arts education advocates uh, correlate student achievement in the arts to student achievement broadly in test scores. They look at low socioeconomic students who have high participation in the arts versus low socioeconomic students with low participation in the arts and compare their dropout rates. Mm. They also look towards um, rates of college attendance and completion. But all of those things we know as educators that are not actual indicators of success in life. They're indicators of success of a very specific moment in time when you disregard all other factors that affect the lives of young people. And so, uh, to be pretty blunt, it's kind of just bullshit that, that those are the, the metrics that we're using because what we're doing is we're actually just appealing to those stakeholders and giving more and more power over mm -hmm. to those people that control policy and control funding. Whereas, 
the young people that I was talking to were saying that in their four, six, eight years of music in school, they were learning how to work with people whom they were never comfortable working with before. They were learning how to envision solutions to challenges that were way outside the box. They were learning how to have confidence to overcome obstacles that they never were able to overcome before, all by playing the trumpet, being part of the choir, being in the jazz band, creating musical theater pieces. And their words are what I really care about. Because if you were to submit any of that as testimony to, say, the state legislature, you're absolutely going to convince people. You don't need the report that says there's correlation between attendance in music class and higher math SAT scores. That's ridiculous. These narratives that young people are building and the way that they are building their skills and applying their creativity to solve the challenges that they face every day is the single best talking point, the single most important narrative that I think we as music educators can be building, in my opinion. Oh, I love it. That makes a ton of sense. And I know that uh, that Colorado Music Educators Association doesn't happen um, out of nothing. It takes advocates, it takes leaders, it takes folks who believe in this work and, and know that the collective power of organizing coming together, sharing your values, sharing what's new and what's exciting in your classrooms, I mean, that's where the, the other forms of fearless innovation and, uh, and risk-taking happen too, right? A hundred percent. And that's not a happenstance. I mean, Colorado has a really long legacy to harken back to the the former governor had a music education initiative, you know, out of the executive office. Um, We're able to see that type of investment reap benefits down the road. I mean, there's like 400 young musicians floating around this hotel that have been making music all day. I mean, we were literally having a meeting. We were talking together as colleagues and there was like flute warm-ups happening in the background, serenading us. Um, Someone had a birthday, and it was the best happy birthday (laughs) concert I've heard in, like, years. Um, You know, 600 kids singing happy birthday to someone. It was absolutely incredible. And I think that that type of investment that we're seeing the fruits of here at the Colorado Music Educators Association Conference really is what could be possible if we had that same type of investment in every country, in every state, in every community. Hi everyone, it's Madeline. I wanted to share with you a new opportunity for any young and emerging leaders who are listening. Back in 2020, ITAC and Creative Generation began working together to support a cohort of young and emerging leaders who work at the intersection of arts, education and social change. And today we are launching the 2022 Young and Emerging Leaders Forum to bring together incredible young leaders from around the world. Check out the opportunity listed in the show notes and be sure to get your expressions of interest in by April 29th. Mm. Well, let's let's end this with a call to action, huh? So um, I wonder about even specific initiatives um, that, that are out there, uh, not only in Colorado, but across music education in general. One that comes to mind is, um, is the elevating of non-Western forms of music in classrooms, right? What is culturally relevant and appropriate to be teaching young people in, uh, in, in communities in which uh, essentially we're in the 21st century, right? Like we're still teaching 17th century European music. I wonder what would happen if we had just, um, if we relied on, our, uh, on popular music of the last 60 years uh, to be able to teach us uh, uh, 
a little thing or two, and maybe just beyond that, uh, African forms of drumming and syncopation and uh, all the way down to South America and all the way around to Asia as well, right? There's so many different cultures and, and the way that they use music has lifelines that connect to each other. And, uh, to explore that in, 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 the, uh, in the classroom is something that I know a lot of uh, daring teachers are doing right now too. Absolutely, I mean, looking through even just this conference program, there are sessions on modern band and the use of that pop pop culture music. There are connections to um, indigenous forms that are from from here, the music of the original um, original peoples of the territory we are on today here in Colorado Springs. I mean, we are seeing that movement inch by inch, but I'm hearing you yes. in saying that we really need that bold call to action. We need a seismic shift. Liberation, baby. In order to, to achieve those goals, because what we know, right, and I can speak of this, my art form back in the day, which I did play percussion, uh, like third through sixth grade, um, but I was a dance person. I was dancing musical theater, and in the dance world, which this, I believe, translates to music, it's really amazing when all of a sudden you introduce specific cultural forms of dance in a school with kids who come from that cultural background. Because oftentimes when that happens, those kids are the expert yes. for maybe their first time in school. Changes so lives. it provides all of those benefits that these young people I was with the other day were talking about around building confidence and around building those interpersonal connections with their peers and with their teachers and all of that stuff. So I wonder, right, what would happen if the music education sector wholesale adopted the philosophy that you just put forward where young people were able to bring their own cultural heritage yes. into the music room, were able to bring the music that they are listening to and engaging with in their, their social time, yes. um, and connect that to the longstanding practices that go way back in civilization. Right. And maybe forego our emphasis on the dead white European guys for a minute, you know? And I, I truly wonder what would happen. The researcher in me wonders like what that study could be to see what the impact is. But, and I know this is a big passion of yours, Ashraf, I think that that actually stems from a larger systemic change in some of the, the leadership pathways, in some of the trainings that are available for educators, in mm. some of the ways that we put forward that, that infrastructure, that seems to be my word of the day, but around what instruments are actually available, what music and scores are put in the hands of young people, that actually brings us back to greater issues of social justice and greater issues of diversity and equity and inclusion, to use all the buzzwords that are the fad of the day in education world. But to think of it in that way, because I think those changes are what is going to actually bring to fruition these kind of theoretical goals. Absolutely. Hey, Jeff, I heard that you're uh, hosting a teacher session tomorrow. My counterpart in that session is uh, someone who I am super pleased to introduce, our special guest today on this podcast and at this live podcast recording session um, at CMEA. Um, and his name is Andre Solomon, who is an arts administrator, a flutist or flautist, we'll have to get to the bottom of that, um, and a music education advocate who is based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and tomorrow is presenting some of this work with me. But I'm so excited to have Andre here because not only is he a former student of mine, but yeah. is also part of our collective at Creative Generation, leading a bunch of really incredible work and um, connecting people uh, in new and different ways 
elevating community knowledge and providing training and professional development like what we're doing here today. So it's super exciting to invite Andre for the first time on this podcast to this live session here at CMEA. Um, please help me welcome Andre Solomon. Woo! Um, hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me. Andre, it is really, really great to have you here, like I said, for the first time on this podcast. And um, I think this is also your first time meeting Ashraf in person. Yay. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. So, well, we always, in the Why Change podcast, love to get to know people, love to start with their origin story. So I'm going to turn it over to my co-host to take it away to get to know Andre. Andre, so good to see you. Um, tell me about how you got to where you are today and how music education and music, music educators were part of that journey. Yeah, so I think like a lot of musicians, uh, you know, music is our language, it's our voice. Mm -hmm. And so I think I grew up um, more quieter and shy, but also wanted to put myself out there. I think a lot of musicians like to put themselves on the stage too, but um, picked up the flute, uh, saw it online on, uh, not online, saw it on PBS, uh, Masterpiece Classics, and kind of just took it from there, kept practicing, and it kind of became my voice in a world where uh, kind of hard to feeling isolated, hard to bring myself to maybe some of the more extroverted people. And so uh, I had aspirations to go to Berkeley because it was in Boston, very close, where I grew up in Massachusetts, um, and then continued to study with a teacher, um, my first teacher in high school, who was very kind, who now is a very uh, family friend of mine, um, and who I really do respect, not just because she helped me uh, learn into college, but also just the fact that she was willing to teach me when times were tough, um, bartering, helping her with the music school, it's how I became an intern. And so it was really nice to see that kindness from someone so close. Mm. Um, and then going into college, I actually started as a math education major. Um, so education has been always close to my heart, but I uh, love math. Uh, but as it got very theoretical, kind of just started thinking, this isn't for me. Negative numbers. Yeah, uh, I do love them, though. <laughs> um, but from there, uh, tried to transition to music and again found another teacher who was actually willing to teach me for free for my audition um, at Syracuse University. And so really, again, great debt to another person who is willing to show their kindness to help someone uh, lift themselves off their feet. And then from there, uh, studied flute um, at Syracuse University. And it was really great. I mean, a passion of mine to continue with music, but I think at the same time, just noticing how the music world operates. Um, at the school, I would say there's probably 10 to 20 um, black individuals, people of color there. And so when you kind of felt isolated, uh, you know, you don't feel like you're always being represented or taken seriously in the space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think knowing that and wanting to change and give people privilege in the spaces where I've went to, um, I thought, what could I do next? And so that kind of led me to go to get my master's degree um, at Carnegie Mellon at Heinz College and really working on advocacy and kind of creating a voice for people of color to actualize their dreams. Because I know at myself, I've had a lot of privilege and a lot of people who have taken care of me to get where I am. So what could I do to give that back? Um, because I definitely know that in the 21st century, uh, a lot needs to be changed. Yes, I, I, that, that was so well spoken um, and well said that mm -hmm. that is the call to action. I think that we were just talking about mm -hmm. a second ago uh, through your story specifically, but 
I, I know we're going to get into a lot of different things, yeah. <laughs> but I have two absolute burning questions. Mm -hmm. One, is it flautist or flutist? It is flutist. Um, flutist, okay. Really? Yeah, so it originated wow. with flutist, but um, around like right. Italian started doing flautist, and then that was actually the bougie way. So flutist is actually the first term used. It translated flautist, and then it goes back to flutist. Oh, it looks like we have disagreement in the audience. I cannot wait for the Q&A. This will be great. This will be great. Um, my second burning question is in just a sentence or two, mm -hmm. what do you think the long-term impacts of Lizzo are? On the fluting, yeah. <laughs> so um, first off, I know I'm saying a few, so say a few words, but Lizzo, wonderful a woman representation, different bodies, I love that. And she does play a really good flute. Yes. Um, but nice. I know that there's such a difference between what she plays and the pop music that she does. And sometimes I wish she could combine that more. But when I think overall, like she is creating representation and having other people wanting to invest in the instrument. 100%, and I was, I was hoping you were gonna say, only because I actually read the report, we'll put it in the show notes, of the spike in sales <gasps> yeah. of flutes yes. as a result of Lizzo's career, which I just think is fascinating. I knew it. Hopefully she doesn't come to get to me, but she's a great musician. <laughs> I hope she does come get you so that she can join us on the Why Change podcast. <laughs> Um, anyways, so back to sort of what we're talking about. I was telling Ashraf earlier when we invited you on this podcast that I was so excited about some of the work that you've led and how it really resonates with the themes of this conference and what we've been talking about here today. So uh, could you just start off by talking a little bit about your role within the collective of Creative Generation and some of the work that you've done at that intersection of both your passion that you just described and the work, you know, that has to get done in the world. Yeah. Um, so at Creative Generation, I'm the community knowledge manager. Um, and so a lot of the work that I do, I mean, I've talked about a little bit before elevating um, people of color and their voices. But again, it's really elevating knowledge that doesn't have to come from one stream. There's different forms of knowledge, whether that's storytelling, it's written, um, it, it could be a composition. And so what are the ways that we can tap into um, many communities to know that their, whatever they put out there is worth and is credible? Because I think we all know that there are some forms of um, often not some forms that are taken more seriously than others. Um, and so at Creative Generation, I've kind of worked a lot with documentation, um, which I think has sometimes gets taken lightly, but those richness and kind of capturing what people have to say um, is important because it has lets us reflect, lets us look at what has been done and what can we do moving forward. So um, was really lucky to work with Courtney J. Body of the Teaching Artistry podcast to do um, podcasts with um, black um, arts education professionals, arts managers um, from every field discipline, it's kind of just looking about what is happening, especially with 2020, with the racial pandemic, and how do we move forward, how we do things better, and create a new arts and cultural sector that does represent everyone. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then from there, just working on some other projects where listening to young voices with TAG, and how um, youth leaders really taught me more than I think they you know, have credit. Some people don't always think their voices are enough, and here I was learning so much every single time I was with them. Um, and then also some other little engagements um, with conferences and learning again more people's voices, what they had to put on the table, and honoring the intergenerational mix. 
And there's a lot more, but I think those capture a lot of documentation and elevating knowledge. Tell me, tell me one thing um, that the youth taught you that really resonated with you. Give me, give me a gem, give me a diamond, a ruby, something. Yeah, so um, really this term um, coin, uh, coined uh, adultism. So I always knew that there was kind of sometimes a little bit of that um, elder, respect your elder, but sometimes that respect doesn't always translate back to you. And so in the session, they kind of talked about how um, this degrading factor, which can really cause um, a lot of a mental, um, a lot of doubting and mm. wondering if you're enough, even a lot of um, arts professionals, kind of this balance of treating people not as human to get the product that they want. Um, and so it just really taught me, and I think it resonates maybe with a lot of us, of how maybe some of our older family members treated us when we were younger. And just knowing that, where were you when you were their age? And kind of remembering that you made mistakes, you had to learn, and so if you kind of put this harsh attitude that they're an adult at age two, then how are they gonna grow? So, and many more things, but I think it's a great term to use moving forward. <laughs> Adultism, y'all. So real. Um, all right, let's move further into this journey of yours. Like, tell me about, um, you mentioned pedagogies earlier. Tell me about um, some of the musician-led social justice work and how pedagogy um, fits in there. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually working with uh, a music school right now, and they're trying to change their landscape, trying to change their organization in a strategic plan. And so um, I think in terms of pedagogy, we had a lot of talks about what does need to be taught um, for young people. Um, thinking about Bach, Mozart, Haydn, all those people who really gave inspirational um, um, uh, curriculum for us to use moving forward, but at the same time, thinking about electronic music, uh, pop music, commercial music, um, do you necessarily need to be um, starting there, or can you start at other places in music history and theory uh -huh. and curriculum to become, again, this 21st century musician? Um, and so I just always think about there are different experiences and how can we tap into those? Again, if you um, combine with representation, not everyone's gonna be seen in that format. And so if you don't feel seen or heard in the curriculum, how are you going to think that you can use it moving forward in your own career? Mm. Um, there are uh, even pedagogies, maybe in uh, the arts management, like how do you hire? Uh, a lot of orchestras have been talking about colorblindness, and so they used to have the, they have the screens right. to make sure that no one can be seen. Um, you know, women don't wear high heels, um, uh, protecting against anyone's gender or sexuality, etc. But then at the same time, when uh, people are trying to hire more diverse candidates, now it's like. Well, if you don't see them or you don't know, and it's only, you know, of course, anyone is skilled, of course, but if you're trying to target and get more people, you know, it just it's you need to see people at the same time because there is that indirectness of colorblindness there. Um, mm. There, there are so many things. Like, <laughs> no, I, I, what you're saying is is really fascinating to me because I think what what you're demonstrating is that there aren't just silos in like music education in schools, music institutions in cities or countries or communities. 
or the total like social cultural fabric of any community, right? The idea that it's an ecosystem and it has to work together. And if we're going to realize the potential outcome of truly decolonizing that ecosystem, everyone has to be bought in from the hiring practices to the upbringing and training of young musicians to the way that funding disperses. Exactly. And I think it's all about willingness. You know, I think um, thinking about my music school, actually thinking about my music journey, um, uh, one, two, maybe people of color who were my instructors. And so thinking about that, like how do you change a landscape when the community in itself is benefiting? You know, it's kind of like, it's working for them. And so if it's working for them, how do you change it and make new things? It's like um, tenure in universities or, um, you know, people are there for so long, which I totally understand and the scarcity that arts um, is. But at the same time, we need to make, sh we need to have rotation, have more people in there. Um, but there is a level of willingness because at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, are you willing to change the system even if it doesn't benefit you? And are you willing to be part of um, letting yourself away from the limelight, away from the, the podium, the, the teacher stand, right? Like um, that conversation around um, folks inviting other people, younger folks, to take their place um, is part of education at large. And music education is no, no, uh, no small part of that. I mean, so many young people want to be their, mu their own music educators one day, right? The people who, who, who transported them to that place of being able to tell your story or be able to perform in a way that shows your full self. And I wonder how, um, how are we building those new generation of music educators? And that's a question for you, Audrey. How are we? How are you? Uh, how did you get? You know, you got built as a music educator. You are you are an educator. You're not necessarily a music educator, but um, talk to me about how you're putting your passions into um, into this, into your work, uh, and creating more folks who you want to see in the field. Yeah. So I definitely, again, kind of reflecting on my own curriculum and talking about willingness, like at the end of the day, like having more voices, having more diverse stories, more integration really does benefit us all. And so, and not just having one class on world music for your whole like curriculum, having other ways to envelop music history. Think about, uh, I know Florence Price has been mentioned lately, the pianist, um, other people into the fabric. And so, how can I, as a music educator, make sure that anyone who I interact with, whether it's teaching, talking, um, working on a project with, feels that they're important? Um, and so that takes a lot of, I think, what can be an obstacle for all of us, and me included, is that there is a lot more work that needs to be done. Again, I think it's uh, Alicia Wormsley who created this monument, not monument, but this billboard in Pittsburgh, but there are black people in the future. And so mm. there is um, black music from 1600s, 1800s, you know, all these years, there's yes. um, Asian music, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, which I do appreciate, um, 
you know, African drumming, but there's more than that. There's more than just the drumming. And, you know, there are other ways to engage in a community than the stereotypes that we all believe in. Mm -hmm. Or what's most accessible, right, for music educators to to embark in. Maybe that is the the African drums because they were on sale at the at the warehouse right but that's not it you're totally right we have to expand further we have to be more curious we have to want to represent even if those who are represented aren't in the room yeah and i think it just makes people feel good about themselves um and isn't that what we want like you just said if we want more music educators they need to feel good about themselves in the field um so yeah feel good (laughs) (laughs) well that's a that's a really uh, nice note to end on Um, So we at the Why Change podcast, um, when we talk to folks from all over the world, we love to find the commonalities between people who are driving this type of change in their work, in the work with others, in these big systems that we're talking about shifting. So we have five questions that we're going to ask you rapid fire. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Ashraf, we can swap on and off. Perfect. The first one. Who inspires you? The people that are doing the work beyond themselves. Ooh, rapid fire indeed. What keeps you motivated, Andre? Um, For me, doing the work, knowing that it is helping other people get to the space that I was lucky to get to. Where are you most grounded? Probably jamming, jamming out. I I, I wanna say practice room, but any, practice room could be any space, but jamming out. Yes. And how do you stay focused? Um, so I'm a Capricorn, and so it's just, <laughs> we're workaholics in nature, so I think it's, it's just a given thing. <laughs> and lastly, why change? Um, I touched on it a little bit before, but I don't think we are meant to stay stagnant, and if that is your goal, like, you're just limiting yourself for a future that you don't even know what will happen yet. The possibilities are endless. Well, thank you, Andre, for joining us on this episode of the Why Change podcast, coming to you live from the Colorado Music Educators Association. Thank you, Ashraf. Thank you to our audience. And we're looking forward to stopping the recording and having a Q&A session with those of us uh, who are here live today in Colorado Springs. But for all of our listeners on the podcast, we'll catch you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. If you would like to support this podcast aimed at amplifying the voices of creative changemakers around the world, please consider donating through the link located in the episode's show notes. These show notes contain all sources discussed in the episode. Be sure to follow, like, subscribe, and share the Why Change podcast to make sure you and your networks get episodes delivered directly to you and that you don't miss any stories of creative work happening around the world. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. This episode was produced by me, Jeff M. Poulin. Artwork by Bridget Woodbury. Our digital media producer is Daniel Stanley. This podcast theme music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support. Why 
Whether you're a CT, TA, ED, AP, SS, on the tilt team, or the build team, or taking a break in the roar room. If your kid has an IEP, 504 plan, SBBHSP, or CYBHWG, or if you use a CELPQA or the CCTHCR212 to assess. If you work with an M6, the DOE, DCYF, OSPI, NEA, AEP, NAEP, or looking at GOSOSY stats, this podcast is for you. It, it doesn't, doesn't have, have to, to be, be this hard. Join us for Disrupt, not an acronym, to break down overly complicated and highfalutin concepts and connect them to the classroom, boardroom, and office. We are James and Alea, two TAED former CT SAG AFTRA AEA members and confused AF artists, of course, educator leaders with a goal to normalize humanity.